I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Oh, I'm really excited today. Alina, tell everyone why we're excited. We're excited because we've got with us Janet Few, who's a historian, writer and speaker. She's also published two historical novels, the most recent one, Sins as Red as Scarlet. Welcome, Janet. Hello, nice to be with you. We're talking about your new book, which is Sins as Red as Scarlet, um, this, and how you research 17th century witchcraft and turn it into fiction. So I guess, first of all, Janet, why the 17th century? What is it that drew you to the period? Well, I'd written a previous historical novel, again, based on a true story, and that was set sort of 1890, 1919 which was a period that involved me in an awful lot of social history research first. But I've been working as a historical interpreter with my persona, Mistress Agnes, who lives in the 17th century um, for about 12 years. So it was quite handy that a lot of the social history was just in my head. In fact, I, I kind of know how to live in the 17th century better than I do in the 21st, I think. So that meant that a lot of the, the basic research was already done and I could concentrate on the story. That's so funny. When I did, the, I did a couple. I've done so far a couple of World War One uh, crime fiction things. People are like, oh, just it must be so difficult to put yourself there. It's like, no, that's actually where I belong. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's just, just easier. I totally agree with that. For me, it's the 1940s. Love it, and I wish I could go back there. Oh no, you don't. <laughs> well, okay, mind getting rid of the Second World War stuff. You'd yeah. like to visit, maybe. Yeah, I, mean, I love that the fashion, everything for me is just ideal from the 1940s. Um, I guess as well, why witchcraft? It's quite, if you're talking about the 17th century, it's, um, it's a big part of it, isn't it? It's, it's where it belongs in terms of uh, the, the most sort of concentrated, I know it was before that as well, but you've got a huge concentration of events going on around that subject, haven't you? But there's a lot out there already. So what made you want to add to the existing literature? I think because I, I do a number of 17th century lectures on various topics and, and witchcraft is one of them. And I think that's probably the one that appealed to me most in the sense of its links with today and the psychology fascinates me because people fascinate me. So the whole idea of what makes someone um, a, a witch or being become accused of being a witch, what makes someone claim to be bewitched or to start pointing the finger at someone else and say, she's the witch. So I think that's it. It's more about the, the people aspect that appeals to me. So you work on a very specific and particular trial. Yes. What is so interesting about it? 
Well, it wasn't going to be the one I was going to write about originally. Um, I have someone on my, my family tree who was accused of being a witch. And I thought, oh, I'll write about her because I knew I wanted to write about witchcraft. But as everything I could find out about that case would fit on the size of a postage stamp, I decided there wasn't a lot of mileage in it. So I was attracted to a local trial, local to me in, in North Devon, which is actually really quite well known. And unfortunately, it's become a sort of folklore type tale and it's attracted all sorts of embellishments that there is nothing about in the historical record whatsoever so I was quite keen to debunk some of the myths and to see really if I could approach it from a bit of a different angle particularly the angle of the people uh, rather than just the, the narrative. So tell us about the trial. Well, it's not typical. It's quite late in the scheme of things. It's uh, not until 1682 that the final accusation takes place. It's also not a rural area. It's a very prosperous port, Biddeford in North Devon. At the time, it was flourishing, whereas the majority of the the accusations tend to be rural and perhaps areas of economic deprivation. So that wasn't it. And I think, too, because I was able to use the local knowledge and I do like to to visit the places that I'm writing about. So it seems sensible not to pick the the Pendle Witches or something, which is miles away from home. Uh, So so I wanted to to bring something new to the story that everybody thinks they know all about. And actually, they, they probably don't. So who was accused and what happened? Well, the, the final accusation, there were three women. Well, there were five women initially. And that's another aspect that doesn't come down in the popular culture. Everyone talks of the three witches because three were found guilty and three, of course, um, suffered the, the death penalty. But there were actually at that particular point, five accusations all at the same time. Uh, and in fact, one of the three women, Temperance Lloyd, had been ac- accused and got off twice before, which again, I mean, it's out there in the literature, but it's not what everybody talks about. Nobody is generally aware that this wasn't her first time that she was in trouble. Um, so that they're fairly typical in the sense that they're, they're elderly, they're female, um, I want to say they're alone. They're they're not all unmarried women or that two of them had been married. And one of them certainly had children, which again is something that very, very few people mention in any of the literature. And the children were still alive, uh, as were grandchildren, in the area at the time of the accusation. So what was the justification for accusing them of being witches? Um, Very little. I mean, the the usual sort of stuff, you know, uh, she looked at me funny, that kind of thing. Um, There were a number of people who were accusing them, um, not just in the final accusation, but in the two previous accusations of temperance as well. Um, The kind of, oh, I've been pricked, I've been overlooked, um, I can't move my arm. or my physical ailments are down are down to them and then there suddenly came in all sorts of other weird things about bewitching a ship um that that really had not come up until the trial and suddenly they they brought this in as if as if from nowhere so there was nothing particularly atypical about the actual accusations and in fact that that was an advantage because it meant it told the story of universal accusations as well where these old ladies on the margins of society probably, um, maybe a little bit eccentric, perhaps dispensing the odd herbal cure here and there, and, and suddenly it all went horribly wrong for them. And the two that got off were slightly different, and that's possibly why they got off, because they were very much of a different social class. So they were a little less usual. Um, but of course, their story 
doesn't come down to the present day in anything like the detail because they got off. So it hasn't attracted people to, to preserve it in the same way. So how do people react to this, well, these incredibly stupid allegations? Oh, that, um, at the time they believed them. I mean, you know, because all your neighbours are saying it, what's it easier to do? Well, you go along with the crowd and the power of peer pressure is incredibly powerful. And it was then and it, and it still is, sadly. And particularly in an era when a number of people were um, illiterate or superstition is part of their everyday lives. If everybody else was saying it, well, that's the thing to do. You know, you, you agree, because if you don't, the finger of accusation points at you instead. So I think it was it was definitely a, well, let's go along with everybody else because they're all saying it and they're all getting a lot of attention for claiming to be bewitched. Well, you know, that, this is obviously the, the thing to do. Um, and there was very little justification for, for any of it. Um, but it was just a wave of hysteria that happened to sweep the town, fueled in part, I think, by the religious position um, in the town at the time. How did the, the women themselves, what is there historically to show how they reacted? Um, and I'm guessing little, maybe, in which case, how did you, how did you approach that from the novel? Yes, well, there, there are a, a couple of... Um, sort of pamphlets, broadsheets that are written, one of which can't even get their names right. So you kind of think, well, how, how accurate is that? Um, there's not, not masses in terms of court records. Um, there was a, a journal written by the brother of the judge who was supposed to take the trial but didn't in the end because of ill health. Um, and he was sort of looking at it from his brother's point of view, who had also been involved in witchcraft trials elsewhere. So there's that. Um, so the actual trial point of view, there is what purports to be quite a lot of dialogue that actually took place at the time. Quite how accurate that is, I don't know. Uh, the the other strange, slightly strange thing that, that needed in my head to be explained was the fact that they swing from admitting they're guilty to claiming they're innocent and back and forth and back and forth. Um, and that seems a little odd. And there are, there are theories that, that they all claim they're guilty as a sort of almost like a suicide pact because they were fed up with being tormented and fed up with their lives and being poor and being old. And I don't really buy that because I think there's there are easier ways of doing away with yourself, particularly if you're known for your herbal cures. You know, why not take a <laughs> Surely you could just take something yeah, and, exactly. yeah. Um, so um, I don't want to give too much away, but I've kind of gone at it from the point of view that it was it was deliberate to, to confuse people so that the onlookers were starting to think, well, is she really a witch or isn't she? And that would would play on their fear because I think by that point they'd all realised that there was no way back out of this and there was no way they were going to get off. Although in fact, had they maintained their innocent stance, I think they may have, particularly if the original judge had in fact taken the trial because he was a very different man from the, the man who, who took over from him. I've got a, I'm going to throw this one in because you just said she. Is this just for women who women were accused of being witches or were um, men also accused at the same time? Well, if you look at the accusations in the county of Devon, the ones that, that you know, there's, there's some record of, there is, I think it's 28 women and one man. Um, if you go across the border in Somerset, there are a few more men comparatively, but it's still predominantly female. And a number of academics have written about it from the point of view of almost a feminist point of view uh, and the fact that it's part of keeping women in their place is to accuse them all of 
all of witchcraft. Um, but I mean, originally I was just going to write about the witchcraft trials itself. And I was probably going to go back to the earlier two accusations. But because what I was trying to do was really explain how and why this happened in this place at this time, I very quickly realized that I was going to have to go back decades to look at the build up of, of what was going on in that place, which gave me also the opportunity to write about the, the English Civil War, um, an outbreak of plague that occurred in the town in 1646 and, and other things as well. So it gave me a lot more scope but also I felt it was essential because you couldn't explain it just in terms of the few years before the trial itself. More generally speaking, um, as a Londoner thinking, oh, these mad country people down in the West Country, um, is it more prevalent witchcraft accusations and witchery stuff down in the West Country? Um, I mean, of course, the, the main prevalence is East Anglia with, yes. um, with Matthew Hopkins and so on. Thanks it's, to that idiot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah quite. I mean, it certainly seems to be more prevalent in a rural setting. But actually, although, you know, it's a bit of a backwater now, at the time, Biddeford was, was one of the most predominant ports in the country because it had a massive uh, tobacco trade, for example. It had a, a trade in the new, Newfoundland cod fisheries. Uh, there was a pottery trade. So it wasn't your typical sort of place. Um, but in general, yes, I think it is, it is um, the unsophisticated rural types uh, where it tends to take hold a little bit more. Totally patronising London-centric view. <laughs> Born and bred with it. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Okay, uh, apart from obviously witch trials, um, what other aspects of 17th century life did you incorporate? And was that part of the attraction, the sheer depth of the era? I think it was. Um, and as I say, by going back those 40 years, really, before the trials, it did give me an opportunity to, to investigate other aspects. And I've approached it so that um, each chapter is almost a story in itself and it's told from a different person's viewpoint. Um, so you get all the characters, most of the characters appear throughout the book, but certain ones come to prominence at, at each incident. Um, so the Civil War, for example, I, I, I mean, I know a bit about the course of the English Civil War in the Southwest, um, but it becomes a, a great, long, boring list of who fought who, when, and, and so on. So I kind of threw that out the window and decided to write about it from the point of view of one of the women who was basically a camp follower um, at the time, which kind of meant it got me out of knowing a lot about the battle tactics. <laughs> um, and uh, although everything I've written did actually happen in a battle and I had a battle, a named battle in my head, I have been fairly vague about exactly where they are um, at any point in time. Um, so that I haven't got all the military historians on my back, <laughs> but yeah. actually, it, it's all it's all real incidents, and I, I haven't uh, I haven't played with um, the chronology or anything like that. So I was able to do that, and then the plague was fascinating. Um, the plague was particularly interesting. I had I had written it before COVID struck. Um, uh, the chapter on the plague it's one of the early ones, uh, and then of course I realised I now had a much greater insight of how people felt in the face of an epidemic that you didn't understand, you didn't really know what was causing it, and you had no effective way of preventing yourself from getting it or indeed curing it. So I did go back and rewrite little bits of that in the light of my my experiences. Yeah, I want to so say... We love we are total nerds on this program. We love hearing about people's sources. So it sounds like because I've 
done fiction as well and you, you yes you can do whatever you want because it's not real but as a historian there's always this struggle to let go isn't there yeah, and just go it's definitely. okay to fudge stuff because it's a story um what sources did you use i have i have real difficulty i mean particularly with the first novel i had real difficulty of letting go of my historian hat mm. uh, and it was ages and ages i didn't write the book in, in fact i didn't write either book in the right order which is bizarre um but i i got really stuck on a chapter because i didn't know which of four houses a particular character was working in as a servant and i kept saying to myself it's fiction just make it up <laughs> it's so so been I, there. Yeah. I, I do struggle with that a little bit and in fact this book of course was more difficult being set 400 years earlier there's a lot less out there and I, there were a lot more gaps um, to fill in but I approached it from a, a genealogist's point of view really so I looked at the characters from a family historian's point of view and used the sorts of sources that we'd use there so you know, things like parish registers obviously and, and, and wills but there were a number of sources that um, were perhaps a little off the mainstream which I thought was were, were quite interesting so for example one of the characters goes overseas and i found the licensed pass beyond the seas the equivalent of the early passport um one of the other characters i think uh ended up in the bethlehem lunatic asylum and so there's an entry there uh, but because i wasn't absolutely sure it was the same man uh, i kind of i found a way of, of referring to that without making it sound like it was definitely him uh, and there was also a really detailed inventory of one of the clergymen because religion does play quite a large part in all this. Uh, and both the, the nonconformist and the conformist um, Anglican ministers do figure quite highly. Um, and there, there was his will, but also this massive, about six pages of inventory. Um, and so I was actually be able to really visualise the rectory and what was inside it. Also, he got involved in a number of court cases. So there were the Chancery Court records as well. So there was a lot there. Um, but I think what I was lacking with this novel compared to the early one, of course, was newspaper reports. Um, because the, the, second, uh, the first novel, which uh, was much later, again involved a trial. And it, it was all there in the newspapers for me to pick up. But this time, there was an awful lot more gaps for me to fill with other sources. So did you discover anything new for the historical record? Um, I, don't, I don't want to claim that anything is 100% new and no one had ever come across it before. There were certainly uh, a number of things that I found that are not publicly known or not well known. Um, one is that there are, are links to Catholicism. And um, certainly one of the, the women who um, was found guilty and one of the ones who was let off, both those families had links to Catholicism, which I hadn't seen expressed anywhere else. Now, I'm not saying nobody said it, but that was something new to me. And also the fact that one of them was, um, was a widow with a, with a family and with a family in and around the same town. Who, why weren't they supporting her? You know, why did they... Did they just back off and, and disappear out of the picture? Uh, so again, that's not widely reported. There's also a uh, an individual who is um, an accuser in one of the earlier trials and then becomes a victim. But in the interim, she's married. And not everybody has made the connection that that's actually the same person um, figuring in both on both occasions. So that was something a little bit different. Uh, and again, you know, other people 
have acknowledged that, but it's not widely published and, and widely known um, in the way that the broad story is. I mean, everybody claims they know where they all live together, and this is the site of their their house. And this alleged house burnt down in, I think, eighteen ninety four or something like that. And everybody thinks, oh, that's where the witch's house was. Uh, there is no evidence for that at all. There's no evidence that they they all lived together um, anyway. Um, so you kind of think that maybe there is there is some some grain of truth in there. Maybe one of them lived in that area, but I, I think uh, you could take that with a, a little bit of a pinch of salt. Um, there was also a, a history of the town that was written a hundred years after the witch trials in the in the 1790s. So clearly, you know, a lot nearer to the time than, than I am now, uh, and that was that was very useful as a secondary source as well. Have to ask. We mentioned Matthew Hopkins. We love giving him yes. shit on History Hack because he is a <laughs> dirtbag of yeah, the highest absolutely. order. Did you find any? Whether they're like like him or opposite of him, did you find any really interesting characters in your research? Definitely. I mean, I find them all interesting. I won't be writing about them, but I'd like to highlight in particular um, one of the Anglican. Um, rectors in fact they seem to have a series of rather strange people in charge of the the anglican church in, in biddeford but strangest of all was was this chap called nathaniel eaton i mean he's he's relatively well known he's got an entry in the dictionary of national biography for example um, but he was brought up in the church of england his father was an anglican vicar but he then um went over to the the nonconformist faith and became fanatically nonconformist. Um, he went to Massachusetts Bay Colony. He was effectively the first principal of what became Harvard College. Uh, left there under quite a cloud. There was money involved. I don't want to give you know, too many secrets away, but there was money involved. He appeared to be married to at least two women at the same time, possibly three, um, because there was you know he, he kind of went from one part of. Um, the colonies to another leaving a wife behind and then picked up another one kind of without bothering to find out what had happened to the first one then came back to, um, <laughs> it's great isn't it then came back to um england because he'd made life a bit hot from over the other side of the atlantic and i think expediency really meant that he went back into the church of england and with any other kind of the convert i think is the most zealous against what you've just moved away from so he then became fanatically anti any kind of non-conformity um and the interesting thing is of course that he'd come from an area which after he'd left it was going to be the area of the salem witch trials but although he was there sort of 20 years before that you kind of wonder how much of that atmosphere he had brought back with him um, to Biddeford and, and, and I do wonder if there's, there's something in that um, that the mindset may have come across the Atlantic uh, with him but uh, he was a absolutely fascinating character but but very strange gentleman um, and you could probably write a whole book just about him in fact. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So tell us about someone you had to invent for the plot, because there's, there's got to be someone in there to fill in um, the gaps. I, I didn't. I didn't actually invent anybody in the 17th century. Um, there is one incredibly minor character who has his leg chopped off in one of the opening chapters, um, because my, my partner is a um, 17th century barber surgeon in his reenacting life. So I thought I need to use all this information here. Um, and I'm also quite fascinated by the history of medicine as well, which you know, kind of fitted in in a number of cases. And and I did give him a name and, and he is, he's invented, but I really didn't invent anybody. I just picked the ones that were there already. And, and I do like to give them names. So I do, my books do have casts of thousands, well, hundreds anyway, because I think that's important. I don't want, I know, you know, some, well novel writing courses will tell you you're not supposed to have more than 12 named characters well I kind of blow that in about about page two really because these are real people and part of why I'm writing it is to preserve their history and to preserve their memory so instead of saying um, the butcher I give him a name um, and and he really is a butcher or a a publican or, or whatever that's rubbish. Twelve names. I've, I know. I've never oh, heard of that. I don't know. It's just one of these stupid ideas that seems to get trotted out on creative writing courses. So I gather, like, like the one where you shouldn't use long words and adjectives um, and adverbs. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, <laughs> just don't up. read my books. Yeah, <laughs> but, probably not for you. No, yeah, I think I'd probably blow twelve names by page three. But, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely, well. definitely. So you didn't have to invent anyone then. Um, what problems did you encounter? It is easier knowing that you don't have to be right, isn't it? It is easier, although I, I'm really obsessive about being right. But clearly, there's an awful lot of supposition. And I try to take what I do know and fill in the gaps with actions and thoughts that I feel fit with with what I do know. So yes, it, it's more gaps in motivation rather than action i think that i'm i'm filling in um and of course because the book also has a 21st century strand that was invented um and although there's references to you know, national characters um that that's all fiction your final novel fictionalizing the story includes a 21st century element why did you feel it was important to do this i think that was really part of the motivation for writing it and I chose to make the um, 21st century element uh, from the point of view of a 16-year-old, which was challenging in itself. Um, it also means that Amazon thinks it's a young adult novel, which I you know, kind of really don't think it is. Um, that's not my, not my idea. But I, I felt I wanted to pick someone who was probably at her most vulnerable. And there are so many parallels between 
the 17th century and the witchcraft trials and that's modern day bullying. And I really wanted to highlight those. Um, so that's part of the reason. And also because I wanted to write about the research as well. So I chose to make this girl, um, she's called Martha in the story. Uh, she's doing a school project and that involves researching the story. So I could bring in how she did the research a little bit, um, which I, I wanted to do. And also she kind of holds the story together because each chapter is written from a different viewpoint and really about a different incident. She pulls, I hope, the reader through the novel and also gives me a chance of making it not all unremitting doom and gloom and a bit of an option for a happy ending. Uh, but there's an, a problem, of course, because I chose to set this between June and September 2020. And I finished writing it in March, <laughs> uh, by which time it was clear that I was going to have a bit of an issue. Uh, and I really didn't want to just pick it up and put it back into 2019 because I'd written about the, the general election in 2019. I'd written about Brexit. I'd written about the climate change uh, protests and all sorts of things like that and, and some local incidents as well that I was desperate to keep. But also for the purposes of the plot, Martha needed to sit her GCSE exams, which of course didn't happen this year. And I mean, I did begin to sort of start rewriting little bits of it. And I thought, this is ridiculous because I knew it had got to come out in August. I'm never going to get to September and, and keep rewriting it. So in the end, I, I decided that Martha would inhabit a slightly alternative version of 2020. So, so there is COVID, but it's a lot less severe um, than it's turned out to be. So there are some references to it, um, but she's still in school. She still does her exams um, and you know, people aren't social distancing the same way and people aren't being locked down or anything like that. You mentioned the correlation between 17th century witchcraft um, and today. How much relevance does it have studying what happened in the 17th century? I think really um, the whole witchcraft accusation um, phenomenon really is about intolerance and intolerance of people who are not like you. Um, OK, we, we don't not in this country tend to be accusing people of witchcraft at the moment but we are still very intolerant and fearful of anybody who is not like us, whether that be ethnically, religiously, according to sexuality or whatever, um, we are very, very wary of other people and often not very forgiving and not very keen to put ourselves in other people's shoes. And at one point I was going to call the book Intolerance because that really is what it's about. And, and that was what it was about um, with the 21st century element of the book, which is about a quarter of it, um, about the fact that people aren't willing to accept that we don't all think the same. We don't all act the same. And that's OK. And we shouldn't be denigrating somebody else just because they're not exactly the same as we are. And then perhaps they stand out from the crowd a little bit. And difference is fine. And it should be praised rather than having people bullied for it, because that's that's kind of what it is, really. Janet, can you just remind our listeners the name of the book and where they can get it? Yes, um, it's called Sins as Red as Scarlet. 
um, it is on the dreaded Amazon. Um, you will find there are two options if you fiddle about long enough to buy the paperback copy. Um, one of which is directly from me, which means you get a signed copy. It also means I get my living room back because currently my, my settee is about three foot into the room with boxes of books behind <laughs> it. Um, if you go the other option, of course, you, uh, you get a print on demand Amazon copy. So my pile doesn't go down <laughs> that you should be able to order it from, from bookshops. Uh, so I would advocate nice little local independent bookshop if you possibly can. Um, or if you can find me online, which is not incredibly difficult to do, uh, then you can just email me and arrange for me to, to get your copy. Um, if you're coming at it from outside the UK, then yes, um, you will need to, to use Amazon because the postage is so horrendous. Amazing. Janet, thank you so much for joining us and giving us this uh, lovely overview of your book um, and a little bit of insight into uh, into what it's like writing a historical fiction novel. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. We've got a fascinating chat for you today. Alina, who's with us? We've got Emily Bullock, who is a historian and author. She's written books like The Longest Fight and her newest book, Inside the Beautiful Inside, was published just a few weeks ago. And today we're going to be talking about exactly that. Welcome, Emily. Hello. Hi. Oh, this is brilliant. So essentially what we're going to be talking about today is Victorian attitudes to madness and bedlam, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. As my, um, with my amateur historian hat on I think you by doing historical novels sometimes you come by default you become a historian because you get to know at that particular point in time so much about what you're writing about what inspired you to write such a I mean it's a dark historical novel isn't it because of the subject matter yeah although I like to think that you know there's moments of hope in it otherwise I'm not sure how we would have survived so long in there um but basically it was I was at a welcome exhibition in London and it was all about um, asylums and bedlam. And I was walking around the exhibition and in a back room was a tiny like newspaper article framed on the wall. And it was all about this man called he was called William Norris in the article um, and how he'd been found in bedlam chained to a stake and how he'd been there for about 14 years chained up. And I just, I couldn't forget about this picture I'd seen. And I went back to the exhibition a few times. And the more I kept thinking about it, there were just so many questions like, how can you possibly survive that long chained to a stake? You know, what would keep you going? And why was his name wrong? There were just so many questions that came to me. And also, like, how can you possibly be so stupid to write a book about someone chained to one spot for 14 years? <laughs> oh, just tell us more about him, though. So you've mentioned him, haven't you? The book is based on the true story of an American Marine. So who was he? And what do we know about his early life? Yeah, well, his name, although the article, the picture called him William, that wasn't actually his name. His name was James Norris. And he was an American Marine. Um, but he was actually with the British Navy, which I thought was a bit odd at the time but the more I started to look into it I realized this could be quite common um American sailors like if they were caught at sea by the British Navy unless they could prove they were American which very few people could you know who had ID back in those days then they'd be press ganged into the um, British Navy and would have to sail with them so he sort of becomes a marine so I was able to sort of track back not where he was born, but that he was American and what, roughly when he was born. 
Um, but there were there was not a great deal of detail on his early life. But what I did find out is the ship that he came from before he was admitted to Bedlam, which was the San Nicolas. Um, it was captured in a battle, the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, at like the end of the 1700s. And it was quite common at that point, I found out, for sailors and marines to then go on and sail in a ship that they'd captured. And it was captured on the 14th of December, 1797. And then I found his date of admittance to Bedlam was three years later, but on exactly the same day, the 14th of February, 1800. And it really sparked for me this idea of why would it be the same day as this big battle he probably took part in, that he then ends up in Bedlam on that day. So it sort of introduced this whole idea of like post-traumatic stress and what might have happened in the battle. You do mention that he ends up in Bedlam. Some of our listeners might know know exactly what we're talking about. So can you tell us what Bedlam is and why is it such an infamous place? Yeah, I mean, Bedlam now, it, it can become a sort of generic term. And it, it was sort of back then in the 1700s, a generic term for asylums, if you like. But he was actually admitted to Bethlehem Hospital for the Insane. Um, there's been a hospital by that name since about 1247 I think it was Um, and it still exists today and it's had various sort of locations in London and buildings. Um, Isn't the Imperial War Museum one of them? Oh I think it might have been yeah and at one point yeah yeah and then now it's out at Beckenham Um, but yeah so I mean when they rebuilt the building he was in it was about the 1600s it was supposed to, you know, rival Versailles. It was beautiful. It had these gardens. It had like ornate pineapples and all this stuff. And from the outside, it was called Palace Beautiful. But inside, it was just infamous. Like the conditions were appalling. And at one point, there was even tourism. Like people could go into Bethlehem and sort of witness the mad people, if you like, and could poke them, throw things at them. And this was all considered entertainment um so it became a real sort of infamous for the mistreatment and the horrors of confinement for people who were considered mad at the time um but yeah it had this horrible title of palace beautiful which is kind of what is an echo the title of the novel i wrote as well this idea that something could be so beautiful and yet it was so ugly and inhuman inside so james norris uh gets captured there's a battle how does he actually end up in Bedlam? Okay, well, he was actually on the, the winning side of the battle. So he, um, it was the ship that was captured, and then they sort of took that over. So he was sailing on that. Um, but before he ends up in Bedlam, he's in a seaman's mission in Deptford, which is basically like where you end up if you've been a sailor or marine, and you end up destitute and poor. Um, and it's supposed to be a bit like a pension support you in that But at some point, someone at the mission wrote a letter to Bedlam, sort of say, requesting that he was admitted for violent behaviour. And there was no one to speak for Norris at that time or to sort of, you know, say, actually, (laughs) maybe there's nothing wrong with him or they just couldn't cope with him. And so they basically just signed him over to um, Bethlehem Hospital, transferred all powers. And um, he found himself there. Uh, normally you sort of would be there for a year um, 
but he ends up being there a lot longer obviously yeah you mentioned you've already gone on to our next question so why where does the lapse happen is it because he's got no one to speak for him but he ends up there for a lot longer doesn't he so why does it go beyond a year and do we know what happened to him in that year um we don't have any sense of what you know him being people weren't diagnosed with anything if you like um there's records of him having violent behavior towards keepers um and other what they called inmates at the time Mm. Um, so he just found instead of being you know potentially could be released after a year if he had good behavior he finds himself um signed over to what they call the incurables um and if you are an incurable and a violent incurable basically you had little hope of ever getting out you could just be there for the rest of your life unless someone came to petition for you or came to try and um set you free so you had no control over yourself it was just up to the the apothecaries and the surgeons who ran the asylum and they could do with you what they wanted so you mentioned moving over to the incurables before that is there any semblance of trying to treat people and rehabilitate them and get them back out or is it very much you just get chucked in and there you are they just feed you and make sure you don't die yeah yeah but I mean also they get paid for people to be there so it's open (laughs) at the time it was open to corruption but no there was no sense of treatment or the treatments that they did were more sort of um experimental if you like the apothecaries or surgeons sometimes wrote books about what they considered were you know treatments such as bleeding or fasting or purging of inmates um so there there were no sort of real structure to it it was basically just keep them clean keep them quiet well clean as clean as possible keep them quiet and they're basically a, a endless supply of guinea pigs yeah yeah and prisoners yeah yeah, business prisoners and um you could get signed over for you know being violent being an exhibitionist and treason you could get yourself sent there for plots against kings or parliament yeah it's quite frightening it just it beggars belief doesn't it and it just it obviously we know that even now attitudes towards mental health are ever evolving and that it's become far more sort of in people's consciousness that to be mentally ill is to be the same as having a physical ailment as well it needs treating and it needs addressing and that but they're just sort of written off as lost causes aren't they yeah and I mean we talk about it being history but the other day I was only reading a um, BBC article about um, teenagers in particular with learning disabilities how they're being physically restrained in institutions and how you you know they'd also been restricted or sent to isolation and so it's a not you know it's it's an ongoing issue as such um I mean he James Norris was finally untied from his stake after about 14 years um but that was only because that people came to fetch him not him specifically but there were reformers at the time um Edward Wakefield was like a member of parliament and a philanthropist um, and he'd set about with two other men to visit all the asylums in the country and make reports about them because they'd heard these um you know these horror stories coming out um, and anyone could sort of run a madhouse um so they found Norris in Bedlam and they, they're the ones who released that photograph and that article in a sort of attempt to gain public um, backing to change 
the asylums and reform them through sort of like public awareness. Um, and eventually, you know, the Madhouse Act of 1828 came about because of their work and because of um, finding James Norris tied to this stake. Um, and when they found him, they claimed that he was coherent and polite and could hold a conversation. But everything that had been recorded about him was just about his violent behaviour and that was it. So what were you able to find out then about um, the 14 years? Obviously, like you said, that they produced the pamphlet and they sort of flagged the fact that he had been in there as sort of part of their cause. But in all of those sources, what were you able to discern about his actual experience of that 14 years tied to that stake? That's the terrible thing about it. There's nothing about his experience of it. There's some records from like the apothecaries and the surgeons recording particular incidents or things that occurred with him, but he was never given a voice of his own or um, asked about his experiences, or if he was, they weren't recorded in any sense. Um, so that was where sort of, I suppose, the fiction element of it comes into, but I wanted to shine a light on that. Like, how do you survive something like that? And what, you know, could possibly get you through that? What would it be like? In a way, you're pretty much commemorating him, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, that sounds a bit pretentious to say that, doesn't it? But the more I sort of learned about him and the more I wrote and sort of found a voice for him, yeah, the more I felt it was really important to expose his history and to give him, through fiction, a chance to have a voice um, and express something, although, you know, he never could. I wanted to be able to do that. Him. I don't think it's pretentious. I think if I found a story like that and was like, I just can't bloody find anything to be able to write even an article about the actual experience, I'd mm -hmm. consider doing a fictional representation of it. Yeah, it becomes the only way to address that gap, doesn't it? To mm. Make a leap between what other people recorded about him and his own actual personal experience. So what sources did you use then to try and tell his story? Um, well, I love a good museum. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, my, one of my main sources was the Docklands Museum at Portsmouth. Oh, it's fantastic. They've got whole ships there. Or, you know, set up what it, life below deck would have been like, um, what they would have eaten, you know, like the cups they had, the tables they used. I find all that stuff just really brings to life history. I mean, there's loads of stuff you can do online these days like databases or you know find my past has logs um, and I was able to sort of track ships that way um, and looking back to how we might have met up with Fletcher Christian you know the boats the ships they could have sailed on um, but really it was like that welcome collection exhibition and the Docklands Museum um, and also visited the Mystic Seaport which is sort of like the Docklands but it's in Connecticut in America and it's like a whole recreated village and docks with the ships and, you know, houses there. And that really helped me sort of get a sense of what his early life in America might have been like. So you must have had a favourite moment in the book or moments in the book. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, I think my favourite moments are those points in time in which he's really free, you know, despite being is physically um, restrained his mind is able to go back um, and visit the past and the people he loved, um, things he experienced. Um, and I think he couldn't have got through it all without, 
you know, a sense of his anger, like that's destructive, but it also sustained him, I think. And the violence that's recorded was probably a result of that. But there also must have been, you know, joy in his life and people he loved. Um, and records show that he had a cat as well, actually, at some point. Um, Boom. Uh, to make everything okay. Yeah, yeah. And so there's no record of him ever being, you know, ill-treating or violent towards the cat. Um, so I sort of commemorate that in this in the novel. There's a Davy, his cat, that becomes his companion. And I think any moments at which Norris isn't judged and is just offered, you know, warmth and comfort and escape. Um, and it shows real lucidity, if you like, a responsibility for what he's done himself. Those are the real moments that, for me, kind of lift it out of just being all horror and misery. I've written a fiction thing about someone suffering from depression and mental health. It's a soldier with um, like oh. PTSD. Yeah. You have to, do you not have to, don't you, put yourself in quite a dark place to be able to write that? So were there any parts that you really struggled to write like where you have to put yourself in his frame of mind yeah I think at the particular time I was writing it I was quite angry myself about certain things in life and what was going on so I could I could connect if you like that raw emotion to him um but what I found really difficult was just writing anything to begin with I was just sat staring at the computer thinking how can I possibly do this and it was only once I turned off the computer and I picked up a pencil and paper that I found a way into his voice. So I basically I wrote the whole draft by hand in pencil, which was like hundreds of pages. Um, and for me, that was a way to sort of get closer to him, if you like, just by that sheer act of taking technology back a bit. Um, and I think it was difficult as well to sort of step away from what's so used to writing is realism if you like and to show that sense of the magical realisms that happen things that happen in the novel you know for Norris they had to be real so it's how do you write something that couldn't actually be happening but your character really has to think is reality and is happening there and then so that was a real challenge for me if you like to find that the beauty within the horror of everything what is the biggest artistic license you had to use? I mean, how did you manage to fill those gaps? Yeah, I, um, I think a lot of it was that eventually, you know, I did all this research and all this history, but then I really had to step away from it, if you like, to find his voice. I had to leave behind all that historical research I'd done that he just wouldn't know about because he was locked away for that period in time. Um, and how the things that were written about him wouldn't have been his experience of things. So it was a way, if you like, almost like a translation, I suppose, of having this information, but sort of flipping it and thinking, well, what is his version of this story? How is that very different? So I tried to stick to just the main facts, which were I knew when he was admitted, I knew when he was um, sent to the incurables, and I knew when he died, and I knew that his name was wrong when they first spoke to him or recorded it in the article. So I stuck to those facts and around that, I tried to develop um, stories and reasons and, you know, almost like a crossword, if you like, filling it all in. What, you know, what happened to him to make him end up there, but also to enable him to survive. And I really wanted it to have an element of redemption. So how could I do that 
but also knowing the point at which he died. So I did refer to like other stories of confinement, like Terry Waite and Brian Keenan, um, and those sort of memoirs people had written about their own experiences of um, madness and mental health. Um, so it, it was a sense at some points that I had to put away that history bit and just find a way into Norris and into his world. I have to ask you, so I'm not going to ask you to tell us how the book ends because obviously we want people to go and buy it, but what were you able, you say, you know, when he died, but what were you able to find out about after he was released? Yes, there's very little information after the article uh, from the point at which he was discovered to then when he was later um, unchained, if you like. And it's, it was actually quite a distressingly short period of time in which he regains any sense of freedom. Mm. So it's, um, it was always going to have that tragic sort of element to it. But I also wanted the ending for there to be a sense of hope and redemption for him. So hopefully I found a way around that without, you know, fictionalising the ending that he then went off and had this wonderful life and lived for many years. <laughs> Tell everyone again, what is the name of the book and how can they get hold of it? It's called Inside the Beautiful Inside. Um, and you should be able to get it from all good book stop, uh, book, good bookshops or online. Um, and there's some great sort of independent booksellers online as well, like Book Hive, rather than the Amazon. <laughs> Boo to Amazon. <laughs> I'm such a hypocrite. But yeah, we, we yeah. like to say that. Use your independent bookstores or you will lose them. Thank you yeah. so much for coming on to talk about your book and to give us a Thank bit of insight. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great to hear more about the Vic- uh, pre-Victorian, sorry, uh, attitudes towards mental health. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's sad and it's disturbing to hear it, but I kind of like that this one sort of forgotten man has been given back a voice. Great. Thank you. And thank you for keeping us all entertained in lockdown with your <laughs> podcast. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> Join us tomorrow when Matt Bone makes his debut with Hedgehopping. This is a new once a month podcast from us to you, uh, run by him. He is an aviation boffin and geeks leaning towards World War Two. And so inevitably he's kicked off with looking at the uh, history of the Spitfire in more detail. So this is going to be a little bit more techie for you every month and a little bit more involved on the air side of things. And we hope it will put a different slant on some history for you, uh, basically without Alina and I cackling for it. So we hope you enjoy it. And then in the afternoon, normal services resumed when we talked to ed caesar about his fantastic new book the moth and the mountain Uh, it's now winning sports book of the year awards it's a tale of dangerous flying and bonkers adventuring uh, around everest so don't miss that don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year 
We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 